Turn your attention, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Pardon me. Ephesians 1. We are back in the book of Ephesians, picking up uh, where we left off. and We'll be reading verse 15, uh, and I will read through um, verse... Well, it, see, it goes on all the way to 23, but I'll, I'll stop at uh, the end of verse 18. So Ephesians uh, 1, 15 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Since the reading of the Lord's word for this evening. Now, we have dealt with Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this rather long blessing of God with a lot of uh, subordinate ideas that Paul just tacks on one after another in this unfolding blessing of the Lord for all that he has given to us in Christ. And now he turns to what is actually fairly normal um, in um, for him in his letters. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but here he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So this is really Paul's reporting on his prayers, but it is much more. Uh, so he uh, opens this uh, with this opening for this reason. Now, this phrase for this reason is normally a uh, an indication that there's some inference he's drawing out of a foundation that he's just given. So you can say, because of this truth, we can therefore, for this reason, infer this to be true. Uh, we can, we can make a conclusion based on the ground that he has just stated. But what Paul is doing here is a little looser than that. It's not really a strict logical relationship as much as explaining to him why he is, uh, when he heard of their faith, he's praying for them. He's simply explaining why it is. Uh, so it's a it's kind of a looser connection. But it's interesting when you think about it, because in verse 13, if you look back in him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed. So uh, heard and sealed. I beg your pardon, heard and believed. So here in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. So they heard the gospel and believed they had faith. So now Paul is connecting and says, because of this, for this reason, when I heard of your faith. So he's kind of connecting with their hearing and their faith and his hearing uh, of their faith. So that's why he makes this uh, statement. Um, now, some people, uh, and I didn't mention this last time, uh, frankly, I just don't get into this much 
uh, in my uh, career, basically. Uh, and that is the authorship of Paul. Some people look at this uh, and say that this could not be Paul because he seems kind of distant from the people of Ephesus. When we know from the book of Acts, in Acts 19, verse 10, that he spent over, tw- over two years in Ephesus. Uh, so the Ephesians, living in Ephesus, he spent two years with them. And uh, so it's fairly common in biblical scholarship for people to deny that the book of Ephesians uh, is from Paul. They think it's from a imitator, maybe a disciple who's writing in his name at best, or simply a uh, forger. Uh, there are a number of reasons to, to uh, question that so-called prevailing wisdom. Uh, and I don't get into this much uh, in my career because I wanted to always have a more positive uh, impact rather than to critique people all the time. I felt it was more important to uh, make positive uh, advances in uh, knowledge and uh, in the work that I was doing. But we could do it. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to do, actually. There are a number of reasons why I think you can have a high view of Scripture. Uh, and when it says Paul, <laughs> Apostle of Jesus Christ, to take this as not a, uh, that this is, this is to be taken uh, on face value as from Paul himself. There are a lot of reasons, and I don't want to get into them tonight. It's, it really would just be distracting. But one of them is this idea of uh, Paul seems pretty distant from the Ephesians. Uh, so notice what he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I don't uh, cease to give thanks to you. And you're, you're thinking, well, yeah, it does sound kind of like Paul has heard about these Ephesians. It's not like he knows these people after spending uh, over two years with them. Uh, so it does make you kind of question, why would you say that? Now, if you want to write this down, you can look at this on your own. It's Philemon, the letter of Paul to Philemon, a man he knows personally. Uh, in Philemon, uh, and it's there's no chapters, it's just one chapter, so you just Philemon 4 and 5, so verses 4 and 5. Let me read that for you. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So this guy, he knows, he basically says the same thing. When I heard of your love and the faith that you have toward, you know, the faith that you have, I give thanks for you. So someone he knows quite well, he says the same thing as he does to the Ephesians. Uh, so here's the question, why does he say this? Well, it's because he has been away from them for, for a while, and he sees that their faith is producing fruit of love. Uh, he's, he's, but he hears of it. He's not there to see it, and so he's telling them, I have heard of this, I have a good report of you, uh, and I thank God that I've heard this report. Now, he does feel a little distant from them because it's all secondhand, and he doesn't really particularly like that, but his ministry demands that he goes to different places, so he has to leave behind these churches he's founded. And it must be a very tough thing 
you all know that, you know, if you had to move across country or move a thousand miles from Southern California to here, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving friends you've had for 40 years behind. Uh, and it's, it's hard. Uh, even when you go back for a visit, it's, you know, you have to leave again. It's, it's not always the easiest thing in the world to do. But this is what Paul is, is up to. He's saying, I've heard of this, uh, and I give thanks for you. So, uh, I don't think we should downplay the fact that when he hears of this, he prays for them. Uh, he gives thanks to God for this. He, this is genuine. This is not some sort of feigned piety, uh, that he's, you know, smoothing over with a nice, pious, uh, semi-empty statement. This is really sincere. He is so grateful to the Lord that these people are demonstrating the reality of their faith in their love for the saints. And when he says the saints here, these are the, this is the church of God, uh, which is really important for our theology. Uh, the, the people of God of the Old Testament, the people who profess the name of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament are called the saints. You find this term all the time uh, in the Psalms. Sometimes it's, it's translated as the holy ones. But it's the same term. There's no difference in the in the original term. Um, and Paul now assigns all the people of the church the same title as the saints. That's because the Gentiles now are fellow citizens with the saints in light. That's the end of chapter two, two of Ephesians. So you are you're part of this great company of the saints, uh, and love toward the saints is vital. Uh, if you want to see this, you just read First John. If you want to know the theme of 1 John, it's very, it's very easy. You know a tree by its fruit. And if you say you have love toward God and you hate your brother, one of the saints, uh, then your love for God is just talking. It's not rea- There's no reality behind it. You have to demonstrate your faith, your love toward God, with uh, love toward our uh, brothers and sisters in the church. So that's what Paul is doing here. He is uh, commending them for their love toward the saints. Uh, and he's addressing them uh, and uh, addressing his prayers and thoughts toward them in the name of God. So this, is, this, this opening is really not unusual. By the way, he does this throughout uh, most of his letters. So if you read uh, in, um, it's in Romans, you read it in uh, First Corinthians, you read it in Philippians and Philemon. You have the same statement of Paul where he has heard about their faith and he's praying for them and he tells them about his prayers. So this is not new. Paul does this throughout his letters. So verses 15 and 16 are not new to Paul. He does this uh, quite frequently. It's pretty common to him. Uh, however, uh, we shouldn't uh, take this as... Uh, you know, a minor thing. What's interesting about it, look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, this is encouraging for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, etc., so that you might know. And what's remarkable about this is He's telling them about his prayers that they would know something, and then he tells them what it is they should know. <laughs> so, in a sense, 
the prayers being answered by his telling them of his prayers for this. So he, he's, he's actually informing them about his prayers and then giving them what it is he hopes his prayers will accomplish. Uh, this is, he's not, you know, undermining God here because in the end of the day, it requires God to act for people to truly understand these spiritual matters. Uh, but he, he wants to line out quickly the kind of things that he wants them to know. Uh, and it's quite, it's quite uh, interesting and important. Now, um, in this address toward God, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. Now, when you look at that, you might think to yourself, I don't think you do, but some people might. You might think to yourself, you know, how is it that the Father is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ? Doesn't that sound like the Lord Jesus is himself not God to say that? Uh, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ has God as his God, then how can he himself be one with the Father? Well, this is, this is explained by the fact that God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of glory. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually what he said in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what this is expressing is really important in Christian theology. And that's the reality of the Incarnation. Uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly a human being. Uh, and uh, when, you, when it says that he is his God, it doesn't mean that he's not one with his Father, but he is one with his Father as the incarnate Son, one who is one of us uh, and has God as his God. Remember, this is what Jesus told Martha when she wanted to cling to him and hold him back from the ascension. No, I go to uh, my God and your God. Uh, this is... This is his role as our Redeemer. So, what this is, brothers and sisters, this is his identifying with us. He's truly one of us who uh, claims God as his God and Father. Uh, he is a genuine human being. And this is, this is vital in Christian theology. You know, we confess this with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And by the way, the new... Trinity Psalter hymnal also has the Athanasian Creed in it. So it's a little fuller and has an other early creed about Christ's uh, threefold nature. A big pardon, the, the Trinity, it's a Trinitarian, uh, the nature of God having uh, three persons. So this is, this is a, uh, a truth that's vital to Christianity. And when you're dealing with Ephesus, uh, what's remarkable is these people are seeing this, these Ephesians, and it's quite striking because in their mythology, the gods appeared all the time. Uh, they showed up in human form. Uh, this, this is in Homer. You have Athena appearing in, in, in the guise of an old man. Uh, you have uh, also Julius Caesar so this, there's a statue in Ephesus at the time that Paul is writing this that uh, the Ephesians are walking by every day. It's in their downtown area. It's a big statue of Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar 
who's called the manifest God. So he's a, a God who's manifested uh, from uh, an origin. He was supposedly born from uh, Venus. Uh, that was his, he claimed his lineage from, from uh, Aphrodite, basically. Uh, and this is, this is uh, called a manifest God. Now, that was also a title of Artemis of Ephesus. Artemis of Ephesus was the chief goddess of the city-state of Ephesus. Uh, she, and her temple was the biggest building in the ancient world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This is in Acts 19. The people are, the tourists are flocking to Ephesus to buy these little shrines. They're little models of the temple of Artemis of Ephesus. Uh, and it was, it was a, the biggest building in the ancient world, biggest temple. Uh, and one of the things that she's called on the inscriptions in the area, again, inscription just writing in stone on these buildings. So you're walking down the streets of Ephesus, and they call Artemis the manifest goddess. She's manifested herself because once a year she would make an appearance to all of her devotees in the temple of Artemis, and, you know, it comes to a peak in the corner, there was a window. And once a year, the window would open, and there would be Artemis waving to all of her fans from this window. Now, it happened to be pretty far away. You, you didn't want to get too close. But, you know, there's Artemis waving. Might have been a young girl dressed up like Artemis, for all we know. But she's the manifest God. She, and so this was an epiphany of, of Artemis of Ephesus. Contrast that with our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no magic trickery here. There's no pulling the wool over your eyes. He came to be one of us. He's a real human being. He didn't just manifest him. God didn't just come in the guise of a human. Now, if you want to see that, you find that in the Old Testament in various places. You see our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before the Incarnation, appearing to be an angel, to be with us. But after the Incarnation, you don't have him doing that anymore because he's one of us. He has come as a true human being. And that's what's being taught here. Paul is uh, relying on that truth. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spirit of wisdom and understanding. So in this prayer, uh, what we're going to do is really focus on a couple of things he's developing, particularly the uh, the object of Paul's prayers. Uh, and I'll make clear what I mean by that. Now, he's developing some threads out of the previous section, verses 3 through 14. So in uh, redemptive inheritance, uh, so we have the inheritance. You just look at verse 14, for example, uh, who's a guarantee of our inheritance. And now verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, they may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? So the inheritance he's mentioned already is, is mentioned again as the he wants us to understand that inheritance. Revelation of the knowledge of God, verses 8 through uh, eight through nine earlier, lavished wisdom and insight, knowledge of him. Uh, now in verse 17, he wants us to know uh, God better. 
central sovereignty of Christ. This is the center of all, uh, all of creation. He's the center of everything. And that's, that's at the end of our section, uh, verses 22 and 23 in particular. Um, and then he's also going to talk about things that are moving on, uh, from here. So this is the, um, this is kind of developed out of what he's already said, and he's moving us ahead to things that he's going to then develop further as Ephesians unfolds with uh, things. Now, some of the things that God or, or that Paul here wants us to understand are things we'll have to talk about later. Uh, so they're later on in our passage going down from 19 to 23 in particular. But here, I just want you to see that the first thing and the kind of the foundation for Paul's prayer here is that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and the eyes of our hearts illumined. So this is this is what we're going to focus on in our section tonight is this uh, Paul desiring that God do something for us to give us. A particular spiritual insight, this wisdom. Now, I I have to confess to you, I'm sorry. I I uh, I do a lot of my work on my computer, okay? And I have the ESV on my computer, so I'm very diligent to read the English Standard Version because I use that. I also use the New American Standard. I have the King James, you know, I can look at. So it's just a lot easier, to, you know, to look at it on a screen. Uh, I I got rid of three quarters of my books when we moved here. I just I don't have room for them now. So the computer screen has my nice nice English Standard Version. On it. Then I read this tonight, and I was really shocked. Because it's different. The English Standard Version I'm looking at in the hard, this, this thing is different from the one on my computer. Both are English Standard Version and they're different. <laughs> and I didn't know that until four o'clock when I was preparing <laughs> to, to speak with you tonight. So I'm, I'm sorry, I should have known this. But here's the deal. This is the 2016 version, and I, on my computer, is the 2001 version. There are four different versions of ESV, and they make subtle changes, and they didn't tell me. Now, I happen to know the guy who was mainly responsible for this, for the English Standard Version. And he's a, he's a charismatic or Pentecostal. He's Pentecostal. Uh, I, I know him. He's a wonderful Christian man, uh, and I, I, I'm not speaking ill of him at all, but we do have a difference on that. Uh, he believes in the gift of prophecy. He's, he worked on this all of his career. He thinks that in the Christian church, uh, you should expect prophecies. Now, when I'm looking at this print version, I just think of him, because here's what it says in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And spirit here is capitalized. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And that's what is meant here by that capitalizing is the Holy Spirit of revelation. That's prophecy that you might receive prophetic gifting. 
That's what that translation says. Now, the one on my computer says a spirit, lowercase spirit, of, of wisdom and prophecy. A spirit of wisdom and prophecy. Now, first of all, there's no reason that I know of with 50 years of Greek under my belt, there's no reason that I know of to say the spirit here. This is a spirit. It's the only way you really can translate this. So, to render this the spirit, I think, is not defensible. Furthermore, I don't think he's asking that they would receive the Holy Spirit because if they believed, they've received the spirit. See, this, he... This is that second blessing of the Spirit that, that I don't think is biblical. And this translation in the hard copy ESV really is not defensible. And I'm sorry to bring this up. I don't want you to question your Bibles. But you should know they're made by people with theological positions that you may not agree with. Uh, and it influences their translations. So here's what you do. You do two things. You check various translations. Check the other the other versions of the ESV, there are four, and see what they say, and then check other translations to see what they say. New American Standard says, a spirit, lowercase s, of wisdom and prophecy. And then secondly, if you have any questions while I'm around, you can ask me, because this is what I did. You know, I studied Greek and taught it. So this is this is not a minor thing for me. This is this is really important that you understand this. So and I'm not trying to come across heavy handed as some, you know, that I have all knowledge. I don't. But on this, um, I I take this very seriously and have studied it very carefully. And this I think this means a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what does this mean? What is he asking for? Well, he's not asking that you have new revelation. And it's a very common idiom to take two nouns like this and really combine them into one idea. This is a very common thing in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, where you have two, two nouns that really reinforce each other into one conception. I won't give you all the details of it, but, but this is what's going on here. Wisdom and revelation. He might, in your spirit, your inner self, have a wise revelation, a, 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 an unveiling of something, a, a penetrating insight. And that's what he means. You might have uh, insightful wisdom. So that's really the best way to render this at the end of the day. That you might, in your spirits, have insightful wisdom into something. And notice what it is. And it's the knowledge of Him. So that's what He says in verse 17. This is, what's the result of this spirit of wisdom and revelation? The knowledge of Him. That you might know God. That's the outcome of this kind of wisdom and insight. To know God. Because knowing God is the foundation of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Most Holy, that is understanding. Proverbs 9.10 
Uh, Proverbs 1 opens with that. The fear of the Lord is, is the foundation of all wisdom. So if you're going to have wisdom, it's to fear the Lord and then to know him. And this is the kind of thing where you're not just knowing about him, you're actually knowing him. He grants to you through the revelation of Scripture knowledge of him, that you might in your life know him. You have him as your friend even. This is what Jesus is called. He himself says, I'm your friend. Greater love has no man. They give his life for his friend. You can know God, the God of all creation, the exalted God. He invites you to know him. And Paul says, I pray that God, in your spirits, you would know him in all wisdom. You would know the Lord. Now, isn't that what Jeremiah prophesied? In Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, that when the new covenant comes, they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. They will all know me and I will put my law in their hearts so that they know me. No one will turn to his neighbor and say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. This is what's given to us in the new covenant revelation, that we might know the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the greatest treasure there is, is to know the Lord. To have Him as one that you can know in the sense of a person who's knowable and whose beauty and glory and greatness is ours. He's given Himself to us to know. He desires to know us. He inspired Paul to say this. And so, you take up this prayer, Paul. Oh Lord, that I might know you better. Oh, that I would know you in the knowledge of you. Give me a spirit that wise and insightful understanding of you, that I may all my days know you, my greatest treasure there is. And that's, that's what Paul is praying for here. And then uh, this takes insight into our mind's eye. This penetrates into our deepest recesses to where this is our great conviction that we know him and we are not uh, distant from him. And he gives himself to us to this end. This, this prayer of Paul that God has inspired the Father is a treasure for us. This is God giving this to Paul to say, I, your Father, I desire to be known by you. And I will give you this ability. I will give you myself that you may know me. That's our great treasure. That's our great hope. To know the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and insight to know the Lord in greater and greater abundance. Amen. What a privilege it is for us, O Lord. Here we are. Here we are on earth and you are exalted above the heavens. The great God. But also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who came for us. Who came to reveal you to us. Greater greater love has no man than Christ who gave his life for his friends. And true knowledge, O Lord. Eternal life is to know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent.
We confess this, O Lord, and we delight in it. And now, O Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom and insight into the knowledge of God, day by day, in our mind's eye. We may grow in our convictions and our delight in you, to love you, O Lord, and to take joy in you and knowing you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.